Monday, October 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over 8,000 Palestinians have been killed in the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Well, I should say over 8,000 killed according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Well, well, I should say 8,000 killed according to the Hamas-controlled Gazan Health Ministry, which is how the New York Times has been taken to saying it when asked about the casualty counts or the Hamas Ministry of Health casualty counts. Joe Biden asked the same question, had this answer. What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed. And it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro- propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. I don't know what the right answer is in any of this conflict, but blindly trusting Hamas does not seem to be the best way to go. But Akbar Shahid Ahmed, Huffington Post's senior foreign affairs reporter, quoted Biden saying he had no confidence in the Hamas numbers, and Ahmed said he couldn't take it. Quote, still reeling from this, he tweeted, get him some smelling salts and a fainting couch, not in that order. The world for the HuffPo senior foreign affairs reporter just disintegrated before his eyes. How could it be? Well, let's be fair to Ahmed's argument. It's that the State Department themselves sometimes cites figures from the Gaza Ministry of Health in internal cables and situation reports. The State Department does quote the Hamas figures, but it doesn't authenticate them. It doesn't say they're accurate. It just says that's the number out there. Other State Department reports have quoted Russian casualty figures in the war in Ukraine. No one's saying it's right. They're just saying these are the numbers they're putting out. Another reaction to this question, a less dramatic reaction, was in the Washington Post where Adam Taylor reported that the Hamas Ministry of Health is more or less trusted by a lot of international organizations like Human Rights Watch. The Washington Post did not get into this, but the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, though they've used the Hamas figures in the past, seem er, hesitant to reflexively cite them this time around. And the conflict's most high-profile incident shows why. In what the Gaza Ministry of Health initially claimed was 500 deaths at the Al-Akhli Hospital, the United States now puts that figure between 300 and 100. Now, in past conflicts, the Gaza Health Ministry estimates have been high, but only a little high when compared to the counts that the UN ultimately settled on. After Israel's 2014 war with Gaza, Operation Protective Edge, the Gaza Ministry of Health was only 8% higher than Israel's own official estimates. So they don't have a horrendous track record. But recently, when most of the world's eyes were upon them, they were pretty massively off. And let's not forget, they are Hamas. Why would any international organization, news, or human rights not verify the assertions of one of the combatants? It's very reasonable to question the Ministry of Health's number. It's silly to overreact and find yourself reeling if anyone's questioning those numbers. But it's also fair to say that the Gaza Ministry of Health's historical record does not lead one to believe or to treat them as just a pure 
propaganda outfit. In this conflict, there are thousands being killed and thousands more would be killed if all Hamas rockets could get through the Iron Dome. We know for sure there will be many, many more killed. Don't depend on an exact count to set your moral compass. On the show today, the Lufthansa heist in story, in memory, in fact, and in the life of a decrepit gangster who used the proceeds to buy lentils. But first, Greg Lukianoff is an attorney, journalist, and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. His new book is The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines, trust destroys institutions, and threatens us all. But there is a solution. The book talks about cancel culture, which we define and surveys its effects. Greg Lukianoff up next. Greg Lukianoff was a Stanford Law graduate who went to work with the ACLU. His ideals are plain to infer from those two facts. He is in favor of free speech. He fought for the right of everyone with an expression to be able to express it. And then at the ACLU, and as he noticed where the culture was headed, he got more and more disturbed. And eventually he left and he is now the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. His new book is called The Canceling of the American Mind. It is written along with Ricky Schlott. There's a foreword by Jonathan Haidt, who was his co-author in his last book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And what it is, is a recitation, a documentation, a thorough examination of the subtitle, Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All, But There Is a Solution. Oh, is there? Greg. <laughs> Not an easy one, to be clear. Greg, welcome to The Gist. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So you go with your definition. There's like six to choose from in the book, and I'll tell yep. you mine. Okay. Yeah, my, my definition um, is, is I'm trying to get at the name as, as this historical period. Basically, I, w I want people to refer to this as the age of cancel culture the same way we refer to McCarthyism as, as the age of McCarthyism. Um, so my definition is the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, punished um, uh, around that started around 2014, that accelerated in 2017, and frankly got even worse in 2020, um, and the culture of fear that resulted from that. Because I was on the ground on campus, and I want to be super clear here. It wasn't subtle that something had changed on campus. In, uh, right at the end of 2013 and all the way through the crazy year of 2014, we're like, what just happened? Why are students suddenly demanding microaggression uh, policies, uh, deplatforming, you know, everyone from Condoleezza Rice to the president of Berkeley? Um, like something very dramatic happened. And it's both what led to my book with Jonathan Haidt, Coddling the American Mind, because we predicted back in 2014 that not only was this going to be a disaster for academic freedom, it was going to be a disaster for mental health. And I think I think, you know, I think we had a point. Yeah, it was prescient. It chronicled what was going on, the cross-cultural currents that led to that moment, and you nailed it. So there was the, that's the time frame. Is that the complete definition? Did I cut you off? There is one, one caveat, though, that I like to make. We also try to get people to think of cancel culture as just one part of a dysfunctional, only the nastiest, meanest part of a dysfunctional way of arguing, a way of winning arguments about winning arguments. Why actually refute someone if you can scare them into never talking again, or for that matter, get them kicked out of society entirely? Right. Or to erect a lot of uh, illogical dodges or yes. heuristics that thwart actually thinking through and discussing matters. In the book, we call that the perfect 
efficient rhetorical fortress on the left and the efficient rhetorical fortress on the right. Right. And so if you want to read the book and get into those, it's really fascinating. I'll tell you my definition. And your definition is good because what you were trying to do is put a time frame on it. Yeah. I was trying to be as simple as possible. And it is this. Cancellation is meeting opinions with punishment or the threat of punishment. Well, that's good. I like it. I think that I think that's clean. Now, what it does, what your definition and my definition don't do is that there is a category of cancellation, which is more about uh, lack of due process and rush to judgments, not about opinions per se, but just about fair punishment. So something like, you know, famously, infamously, how much should Louis C.K. be punished for masturbating in front of women? Now, there's there's no real free speech argument there. I mean, maybe afterwards trying to not let him take the stage in comedy clubs or uh, protest protest uh, his appearance at um, different venues. But just in general, how much should he be punished? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think both our definitions don't get to them, but maybe not every definition is perfect. Yeah, well, I, I don't think they are. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we go through so many different ones. I think Jonathan Rausch's uh, uh, definition from Constitutional Yes, he has a six six prong. It might definition. be the most yeah. precise, but it's a little uh, a little too too many moving parts. It's not yeah. it's not simple enough. Okay, so the thing and what a definition does and the fact that there are so many out there, maybe someone retreating to their fortress might say, we can't even agree on the definition of cancel culture. Yeah, I would say something like, well, can we really agree on the definition of friendship? I mean, (laughs) don't they? And the Greeks had six or seven words for love. It's not like these things don't exist or even if love doesn't exist, it's a concept that is very useful to human beings. I would think that there are so many definitions or competing definitions, it's people trying to do their best to do the impossible, which is to convince critics that this phenomenon that's documentable, and there are 30 charts in your book to document it, (laughs) actually exists. That it's not just an always ever thus or um, is just an exaggeration of partisans. Yeah, well, that, that that's mission number one of the book is to say this is real. It's not just real; it's happening on a historic uh, on a historic scale. You have to go back to the Red Scare to find anything that's even as close. McCarthyism, the number of professors who have been fired due to cancel culture. And by the way, during the Red Scare, um, and this and by, and I want to be really clear, that was before the law for, for uh, First Amendment protections for academic freedom and free speech were established. So universities actually thought. They could fire communists for being too doctrinaire and indoctrinating uh, students. Meanwhile, about at the time, the estimate was about 63 communists were fired during the Red Scare. Uh, that now gets rounded up to about 100. I think it's actually, in, now that we have hindsight, we can actually see there was probably more than that. But, you mm-hmm. know, we're going to go over about 200 professors fired, 1,000, more than 1,000 targeted, about two-thirds of them punished in one way, uh, another way. And this is happening at a time where there is almost no viewpoint diversity at some of the schools. Um, uh, and elite colleges actually account for wildly disproportionate amounts of cancel culture. There's almost, you know, there are departments with not a single conservative in it in the first place. Literally, literally a survey of thousands of academics found zero conservatives in the fields of communication studies and anthropology. It's, it, zero. It, it's not so, like, I sometimes think of it as like a... Because you have the charts, you have the charts of ratios, and even in engineering, it's almost a two-to-one ratio, conservative to liberal. But then we get to the charts, the parts where we can't establish a ratio. It's comical. Because there is not one conservative. <laughs> it's, it's technically an infinity sign, basically. And I'm not... And you're not a conservative, but it's probably good to have 
one conservative in the field of communications, from what I understand, conservatives communicate too. Yeah, no, no, no it, it's kind of nuts. But w- when we talk about the perfect rhetorical fortress, remember, step number one that even intelligent, highly educated people use is if I can label you conservative, doesn't matter if you are, but by the way, if you disagree with me, you automatically are, um, mm-hmm. I don't have to listen to you anymore. And I'm like, these are like these are educated people. And I confess, by the way, I know this from personal experience. When I started at Stanford back in 97, I fell for that. And basically, like, yeah, like I, I, that's why I didn't read Thomas Sowell until much later. And I was like, really? People are objecting to this guy? Or for that matter, people had convinced me that Camille Paglia was some crazy right winger when she's... She's like a crazy uh, non-right winger. <laughs> she's someone who thinks for herself, to yes, say the least. Yes, yes, yes. So I didn't. I was always attracted to all sorts of views. I was raised like that. And I just assumed, and this is where it snuck up on me, that this ideal of pluralism of thought and also action would be embraced by anyone who claims yes. to, you know, stand up for democracy or our process. And it's just not. It's just clearly not. I don't know that people who engage in cancel culture, per se, would say, no, I don't believe in pluralism. <laughs> they just articulate a different set of virtues or values. And when you think about them, they're like, well, that's just not pluralistic. And it goes back to uh, philosophers, very important philosophers from um, the at around the same time as the free speech movement, right? Yeah. Well, we, we talk about the, you know, the free speech movement began at Berkeley in 1964. Now, I'm a free speech guy. Um, I didn't actually understand that some of the very same people who claimed to be defending free speech were the ones who were unplugging people's microphones when they came to talk. Now, there were real great free speech heroes, including my uh, Harvey Silverglade, who's my mentor, and people like Nadine Strawson. But it, sometimes the message was a little mixed. Even Former worse president than of that, the ACLU. Uh, yeah. Even worse than that. Um, one year later, the, the the guru of the left, Herbert Marcuse, who was a big freaking deal, um, wrote wrote a book called uh, Repressive Tolerance, where he very very clearly argues, very specifically argues, that to have real freedom, as only a totalitarian could, real freedom will come uh, when we actually suppress the views of so-called conservatives and right-wingers from their regressive views. He, he's very clear that he means specifically conservatives. And that essentially, and, and the thing is, like, people treat this guy like he's a great thinker. And I'm like, let me think, get this straight. You're argument is good people have free speech perfect society actually shuts down bad people it's like kind of like that's just fi- that, that that is childishly totalitarian and it, and, and it was taken seriously this guy was taken seriously even though he also thought mao was great and a lot of this stuff even in the 70s he thought mao was great um but beyond like that, soviet communism oh, to be fair he got some things right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the um but then in the in the 70s this got picked up by people like richard delgado mary matsuda and they pushed for the speech code movement, which was already hitting campuses by 1985 that resulted in the first big, what I call the first great age of political correctness, which should have been a bigger warning um, because it, it came and then all the codes were defeated in court, although or so we thought. Actually, there are more codes after it than there were before. And But at the same time, PC kind of went out of fashion among students mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. faculty. But I can tell you from starting at FIRE way back in 2001, you know, just one year out of law school, that things were not great for free speech on campus. And I spent, I'd say, maybe the first 13 years of my career being like, hey, guys, like this is bad. And administrators are terrible on free speech and academic freedom. And they're teaching bad lessons. I mean, I haven't called my first book Unlearning Liberty to give you an idea of what I thought about what they were teaching. And the public started to really notice something had gone wrong when the first generation of students to be anti-free speech in some time started hitting campus around 2014. 
So to steel man the sure. argument of the people who deny cancel culture, you just talked about books that were published in the 1950s yes. that essentially were cancel culture. So when they say, you know, this is nothing new, doesn't that show this is nothing new? I think what they're talking about, one of the reasons why I want to establish it as a historical period is because I think all of the factors that created it are unique when you take them all together. And one of the big ones is what social media enabled. Like basically, like if you wanted to get a columnist fired, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, you know, you'd write some letters to, to the uh, New York Times and they'd go in a drawer. Um, what, what you can do in the age of social media is have a whole bunch of sock puppet accounts and have your friends with a whole bunch of sock puppet accounts and suddenly make it look like there's an army demanding you, you fire this person for retweeting a joke. Or to further steal, man, uh, I think that there are many people, you don't need to do the invention. Sometimes you do. There are many people who are actual people who are there able to be roused based on any you know, what they call microaggression. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons why we talk about the, uh, in the very definition, we talk about the uptick of campaigns. Because I'm, I'm, I'm big on free, free speech history. I, I, I'm not give, giving, making an argument anything as naive as people have never been conformists, never been censors before. Of course they have been. But uh, the idea that something weird and uniquely 2014 didn't start happening around then, that we all saw with our own eyes, is, is one of the arguments that we're trying to make. Because, I, okay. because I'll just add one thing. One thing that students don't seem to get is that for the first chunk of my career, it wasn't unusual for students to really get mad at professors for saying things or really dislike a speaker coming. It was comparatively unusual that they demand that professor be fired, um, that, mm-hmm. their, that their uh, classmates be expelled, or that speaker not come. They would protest it. They'd get, the, they'd get mad. But uh, the extra step of being, this guy has to be fired, really uh, coming from students, that went off the rails in 2017 and hasn't stopped. So, again, let's further steel man the argument. Was the reason that they didn't raise the demand they were better people steeped in more virtuous virtues or that it wouldn't work? Um, one of the claims of the cancel culture isn't real is it's just a voice of the voiceless. And now people who are historically oppressed or getting power are able to pursue justice. So maybe that's what was going on. There was oppression then. There's less oppression now. That's such BS. Like uh, <laughs> It's one of these arguments where... Guess where I've heard the, the, the most vociferous defense of cancel culture? Harvard students oh, sure. <laughs> when I taught a class there. And I'm like, guys, uh, there are more people at, at, at these, these schools um, in the 1% than the entire 50 or even 60% of the American uh, like economic distribution. This is the definition of elite. Like the average Harvard parent makes half a million dollars a year. The average Harvard professor makes $250,000 a year. The average American family makes something like 70. Like, so these are these are elite institutions that co- where uh, camp, camp, cancel culture is concentrated. To be clear, you know, and FIRE is nonpartisan. We, we, we protect professors all over the spectrum. We talk a lot about cancel culture from the right in the book, um, and we defend, you know, professors on the left being attacked from the right all the time. But the the, the most intense cancel culture are those top 10 schools. Uh, and those are those are the definition of upper class, powerful people. And a lot of times, by the way, and here's the dirty secret. And this, is, this is something I didn't ne- necessarily emphasize quite enough in the book, but your, your listeners need to understand. It's not that administrators were the terrible people for free speech up to 2013, and then students became terrible uh, for it and they took over. No. A lot of what's going on is administrators are encouraging the students they like 
to do the shout downs, uh, to, to actually bring charges. Uh, sometimes it's DEI administrators, like in the case of Carol Hooven, that actually start the movement against her because she argued that biological sex is real. So one reform that I, I'm not sure is in the book, but I want people to know this. Every time there is a professor losing their job over their opinion, every time there's a shout down, every time a professor, uh, a student gets expelled because of their opinion in the face of a, a, a student campaign, the university should launch an investigation into did the administration do anything to stop this? And for that matter, did they do anything to encourage this? And I think for that second question, they're going to find that administrators do that all the time. So uh, about a year ago, I began, in fact, my Substack career in an exchange of letters with my old friend, Adam Davidson. He's there on page five of your book is saying something like, if I worked for the New York Times, I'd have quit today after they did an editorial saying cancel culture is real. <laughs> and Ad, so what are, what are, uh, what our exchange was meant to be was he doesn't really believe in cancel culture, doesn't believe it's a big problem. And I have, I would say, you could argue, been the victim of it and certainly thinks think it's real and don't think it's nearly as uh, big a problem societally as the oppression of the Uyghurs, but I think it's a real problem. Anyway, Adam, and I should tell you, this exchange of ideas in the free and open spirit of um, inquiry uh, stopped after Adam unilaterally withdrew because he didn't want to engage anymore. So he wrote, and this was his argument, and he was uh, quoting a guy named Adam Gurry, who you also quote in your book. <laughs> and they used it. <laughs> so you're going to like it. The they, least educated quote I've read probably in my career. Like, like, talk about a quote that immediately made me like write off someone's opinion from that well, point on. <laughs> well, Adam said, an absurdly high number of the thousand quote-unquote canceled people every month, and he was using fire databases. Yeah. An absurdly high number uh, is would be a thousand canceled every month. But still, he says, it is tiny to the point of irrelevancy. More than 60,000 people lose their job every single working day and far fewer than four of them. I guess he does the four times uh, 250 working days to get to the thousand of them are because of anything anyone would call cancellation. So it's maybe it happens, but it doesn't matter. That's the minimization part of it. Because, oh, okay, one, for our numbers, we know f full well that we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg because one out of six professors say that they have been investigated or threatened with investigation for their academic freedom. That means their free speech, their publications, the kind of thing that mean cancellation. One out of six. One third of them said that they uh, have been told by administrators not to uh, not to do controversial research. Like that's that's cancel culture. That's a that's a bad thing. Adam Gurry and like a lot of the people who who, who claim that cancel culture isn't real. Not only do they show such tremendous arrogance because they're coming from the point of view, the right saying this. Actually, no, not not the right, not just the right saying it. A lot of people all over the spectrum are saying it. But so it can't possibly be real. So that's that's the that, that's like the starting assumption. Then they look at numbers that they know full well um, are are just showing that some of the cases that are known and are still being completed, and say, well, that's nothing historically. BS. Like that means you know nothing about the history of freedom of speech. Guess how many people were we used to believe were prosecuted during the Sedition Act of 1798, considered oh. the, the like the great scandal of freedom of speech in the early uh, colonies. Uh, well, sorry, in the, in the early republic. So what was what was it? Twelve. Uh huh. And uh, and uh, deep research into it now indicates that there are probably fifty. 
um, yeah. prosecutions. Uh, but but in, but in terms of people actually being indicted, I think there were, I think we still believe there are only about ten. Does that mean it's not a great scandal in American history? No, you're kidding me. And like I said, if you're saying that 200 professors being fired, and f I think something like 40 of them um, were tenured professors, is not a big deal. You're saying McCarthyism wasn't a big deal. Um, and that's just nuts. And we will be back tomorrow to continue our conversation with Greg Lukianoff. We discuss if cancel culture might in fact be a good thing, and there will be a debate on if the juice is worth the squeeze. And now the spiel. Last week it was announced that Vincent Asario died at the age of 86. The signature caper of the career of this member of the mob was immortalized in the film Goodfellas. You may remember it. And these are the guys that Jimmy put together for what turned out to be the biggest heist in American history. The Lufthansa heist. Asaro wasn't listed in the rundown that Ray Liotta's Henry Hill character mentions next. Most of those guys actually went by their real names in the movie, Johnny Roast Beef accepted, because most of those guys showed up dead in Cadillacs and meat freezers after the robbery went down. You can't malign or libel a dead man. Asaro was the capo regime of the Bonanno crime family and oversaw their Kennedy Airport interests, so he got a taste and what a taste it was. After the supervisor had opened the safe for the thieves, the rest was duck soup. They took 30 shipments of gold, pearls, jewelry, and checks. They also knew just where to look for the $3 million in used money that had been flown in on Friday from Frankfurt. The soup was even thicker than that estimate, $5.8 million. Asaro escaped justice, formal or otherwise, for decades, but in 2014, he was arrested in an indictment that included the Lufthansa heist. Here's how the New York Times obit that ran on Friday described the criminal charges he faced in 2014. The indictment implicated Mr. Asaro in a sweeping conspiracy in which he was also accused of robbing FedEx, then Federal Express, of $1.25 in gold salts, which can be used in medicinal treatments, bullying his way into the pornography business and seeking unsuccessfully to bump off a cousin who had testified about an insurance scam. So we get the informality of language with bumping off, but the properness of saying that FedEx, oh, we might have disoriented you, 19-year-old New York Times obit reader. That was once Federal Express, just so you're properly oriented. Also, the crimes or misdeeds go like serious crime, serious crime, bullying, and then attempted murder. Bullying. I mean, how is one supposed to make inroads into the pornography business without a little bit of moxie? One needs to be well endowed with sharp elbows or some other distinctive body part to make their way in the world of adult entertainment. But wait, because Asaro's uncle was Michael Zaffirano, noted mob pornographer slash landlord. In 1979, the Times covered Zaffirano as part of a new trend of mafia figures openly, as opposed to clandestinely, operating sex-related businesses. Quote, the building Mr. Zaffirano owns on Broadway near 49th Street houses the Pussy Cat Theater, which shows hardcore sex films, and the Broadway Arms, a private club that caters to homosexuals. The Broadway Arms advertises that it is open 24 hours a day and that it shows, quote, 
gay, unquote, films. The Times goes on. Mr. Zaffirano's other building is 207 West 48th Street near Broadway. Home for the Cat's Eye, a self-advertised topless and bottomless disco juice bar that features exotic dancers. On the top story of the two-story building is the Leave It to Beaver Lounge Massage Parlor. Perhaps Asaro, the nephew... His bullying consisted of a failure to acknowledge his privilege, the role nepotism might have played in his rise. Or perhaps he was bullying and strong-arming the copyright holders of the Leave it to Beaver trademark, including the estate of Barbara Billingsley. In any case, that indictment of Asaro, the one about the bullying and the spate of violent felonies, resulted in a not guilty verdict. But coverage of Asaro painted a picture of a mafioso and the mafia in decline. The Times in 2015. Growing old, Mr. Asaro stayed in his old neighborhood in Queens, shopping at Waldbaum's, sticking with the routines he knew. Different article in the Times in 2015. Three decades after the legendary Lufthansa heist, the aging gangster Vincent Asaro was so broke that his jewelry had been in hock for two years, and he was spending his days shopping at Waldbaum's for orzo and lentils. Now, if you're not from Nassau County or Queens, maybe you're not understanding the significance of Waldbaum's. And here is the significance. There is no significance. It's just a supermarket. It's not high end. It's not low end. Just where you got a gallon of milk and pork chops on special for $3.19 a pound. Wait, you're telling me the Bonanno crime family underboss shops at Waldbaum's? Not some heavily fortified black market purveyor of legumes and grains? Why wouldn't he shop at Waldbaum's? They have Orzo at Waldbaum's. The entire coverage, the fact of it, the tone of it, tells me that we are still enthralled with these figures as if they retain some allure, some seductive danger. But in truth, they seem so ordinary because they are ordinary. They're less than ordinary. They're a little sad. As the last line in Goodfellas tells us, I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Mob bosses, capo regimes, crime lords, not just washed up octogenarians. For almost a century, it seemed like an impossible task to break the mafia. And there was a high toll we all paid when the mafia was powerful. We paid it in higher prices. We paid it in public corruption. Then the government really did what we asked them to do. The mafia has been brought to its knees, and this is the result. Old men who once connoted wealth and menace, their list of crimes replaced in old age with a journalistic attempt to find meaning in shopping lists, just as quotidian as anyone else's. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. And Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oopperoo, Thanks for listening. Did Tom ever tell you about my painting? No. Look at this. That's beautiful. I like this one. One dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. One is going east and the other one is going west. So what? And this guy's saying, what do you want from me?